Hello and welcome to season four of Mouthwash, fresh chat that leaves you feeling more confident with me, your host, Paul Armstrong, creator and curator of TVD Conference. The theme this season is the real future of work. What's really going on with the world of work under the hood? What's changing? What's not being said? We're checking assumptions, checking in on ourselves and also the future. I spoke with an amazing array of people from Dan Pink to Harvard University professors, TikTok superstars, data specialists and generational experts, all live on Twitter spaces. What follows is a recording of that space, so it's more conference call than podcast booth. Sponsors are incredibly important to me, and I am proud to say Ecology are back, and they planted a tree for every live listener we had. We're over 15,000 trees in the TBD forest now, and you can start planting your own over at ecology.com. That's spelled E-C-O-L-O-G-I.com. Workplace by Meta also came on board this season. Their familiar features help everyone work together in new ways and whatever you bring to work to help you be you, Workplace celebrates it. To make your place of work a great place to work, visit workplace.com forward slash human. Check it out. It's very, very cool indeed. Make sure you never miss a moment of Mouthwash by signing up for the newsletter over at mouthwashshow.com. And you can also get a text alert over at mouthwash.norby.live. Very handy for busy people. Check out all those links in the description too. As with all good podcasts, please share it on a network you trust and leave us a review. It really does make a difference. Please enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to season four of Mouthwash, fresh chat that leaves you feeling confident with me, Paul Armstrong, your host, creator and curator of TBD Conference. The conference attendees say is like TED without the bullshit. We're flipping it up this season. Um, we're live on Tuesdays, Wednesdays and Thursdays. You get the same amount of mouthwash just spread over the middle of the week, uh, a reflection of the times and changing world of work, which is our theme for this season of Mouthwash, the real world of work. Um, this season, we're exploring what's working what's not we're checking assumptions checking in on ourselves and also the future i want to know what's really going on under the surface where it's all going and how we're going to get there i have an amazing cohort of people joining me this season from multiple best-selling authors like dan pink and gretchen rubin tonight's guest to brand new startups who are creating new models for the metaverse i'm also discussing the future with experts from harvard university behavioral psychologists to tiktok superstars check out the full lineup and previous episodes of mouthwash over at mouthwashshow.com. You've got all details over there. And I'm proud to say we are sponsored again this season, this time by the beautiful folks over at Workplace by Meta. Whatever you bring to work to help you be you, Workplace celebrates it. Their familiar features help everyone work together in new ways and to make it a part of your work, uh, a great place to work, visit workplace.human sorry workplace.com forward slash human that's workplace.com forward slash human. Check it out. It's very cool stuff indeed. Uh, lots of fun as well. Oh, uh, and Ecology are back as well. They plant a tree for every listener um, that's live in space uh, in our TBD forest. We've got over 13,000 trees at the moment, and so we're going strong. Uh, If you are looking to reduce your or your business's carbon footprint, they're amazing people to work with. So if you head over to ecology.com, you can start planting your own forest. Very cool. So that's E-C-O-L-O-G-I.com, E-C-O-L-O-G-I.com. Brilliant. Uh, Actually, it's a good time to share the space if you're live on Twitter. Uh, Click the round blue plus button in the bottom right hand side of your screen and tell the world you've found something good Uh, you'll be doing the world a favor and everyone you get into the space means another tree in the world and i think you'll all agree that's no bad thing 
Okay, joining me tonight from the New York is none other than Gretchen Rubin, multiple New York Times bestselling author, who I first interviewed for Forbes way back in 2016 when we were both 21. Um, fast forward to, uh, not always an author actually, Gretchen started her career in law and clerked for the Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. Uh, very, very interesting flip forward to today. And Gretchen sold over 4 million copies of her books, including Better Than Before and Four Tendencies to Name Just Two. The Happiness Project, another of Gretchen's books, is celebrating its 10th year of publication and has actually spawned a movement around the world focusing on improving happiness. Uh, it now has its own podcast and app, uh, and they're both helping people improve their work and also private lives. Gretchen is in Oprah's inner circle and Fast Company dubbed Gretchen one of the most creative people in business. And those are just some of the accolades I could have picked. Welcome to Mouthwash, Gretchen. What was the first thing you thought of when you woke up today? Oh, um, where's my dog? <laughs> my dog wasn't where I expected him to be, so I thought of, where's my dog? Ah, okay. Um, this season's all about the future of work. Um, what's your current situation when it comes to work? Are you back at an office? Did you never have an office? How do you, how do you work? I have an office in my apartment, and so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I never left my workspace, and so I'm still there just as I was. But I do a lot more from that office than I used to. For instance, you mentioned I have a podcast. I now record from my podcast. I haven't gone into a studio in two years, and I doubt that I will ever return to a studio uh, to record that podcast. So I do more in my home office, but um, I never had a different kind of office. Do, do you find that you work differently when you're not in that office now? Have you sort of trained yourself to focus in that space, or can you still go outside say to a cafe and you know uh, work, work elsewhere well you know what i years ago i read an article about how like knowledge workers were much more efficient if they had more than one screen and i had always thought oh if i have more than one monitor just or one more more than one central image it'll distract me i'll get i'll get um i, I won't be able to focus so i used to always like go to a library down uh, that's a block for me go to a coffee shop and work on a laptop but i now have three monitors and i've really gotten accustomed to that i find it much easier to work with three monitors where i can look something up in the, the dictionary or thesaurus while i'm writing a draft or making it you know seeing where something is on my calendar and so i used to go out and about much more and i really enjoy that but i really miss my monitors now when i'm on a laptop so i tend to just work at home unless i'm really really doing deep original writing Ah, I keep um, getting pitched a lot of technology that expands the screens but on the go now. So there's this beautiful oh. thing which is magnetic and it goes on the back of a laptop and then put, you pull out two extra screens that are sort of Wi-Fi enabled. And I was like, is that really where we're going? But well, I guess if people need it, they need it, you know. Well, I've seen that, but I haven't actually talked to somebody who swears by it. So I am dying to talk to somebody to see is that actually good and helpful and helps you focus and work more efficiently? Or is it just another doodad that distracts you and is another thing to worry about, you know, connecting or whatever. But um, yeah, I, it, it feels ugly and distracting in when you see somebody else using it. But I have found that it really does help more than it distracts yeah i when i saw it out in the wild because i'd only had it pitched me and i was like yeah sure that'll catch on um yeah. and i saw it and i kind of oh i sort of got it it was a bit like they were in a cave they were sort of hiding and they used it mm. more as a, a blocker rather than the actual screens i didn't see their eyes move really from the center uh mm. but yeah interesting sort oh, of stuff 
Right. Using it as a shield to, yeah, yeah. to block out. Yeah. I don't have trouble focusing. Um, I'm kind of an over-focuser. I'm the kind of person who won't hear you walk in and, ju- you know, jumps a foot in the air um, because I'm so lost in my own thoughts. So I have, I don't have trouble focusing, but, um, but I do like the efficiency of switching. Mm. Yeah. Um, I, I first became aware of your work through a friend telling me about the four tendencies. Mm. Um, it, it turns out I'm a question. I think we, I think mm. I told you that over email. Um, <laughs> yeah. Shockingly, who knows? Doing a podcast. Um, can you explain what the four tendencies are to people that don't know and why it's so powerful for people to know which type they are? Well, the four tendencies is a personality framework that I, you know, I feel like I discovered it, but I guess I created it. Um, and what it looks at is how people respond to expectations, which sounds very boring, but turns out to be a really, really helpful thing to know about yourself. So we all respond to two kinds of expectations. There's outer expectations, like a work deadline. And then there are inner expectations, like my own desire to keep a New Year's resolution. So depending on whether you meet or resist outer and inner expectations that makes you an upholder like me a questioner like you paul an obliger which is the biggest tendency that's the one that the most people fall into both men and women alike or a rebel so upholders questioners obligers rebels so upholders readily meet outer and inner expectations they meet the work deadline they keep the new year's resolution without much fuss they want to know what other people expect from them but their expectations for themselves are just as important so their motto is discipline is my freedom then there are questioners questioners question all expectations they'll do something if they think it makes sense so they resist anything arbitrary like january 1st an arbitrary date or inefficient or unjustified so they're making everything an inner expectation if it meets their inner standard they'll do it no problem if it fails their inner standard they will resist so their motto is i'll comply if you convince me why then there are obligers. Obligers readily meet outer expectations, but they struggle to meet inner expectations. So this is a friend of mine said, well, you know, when I was in high school, I was on the track team and I never missed track practice. So why can't I go running now? Well, when she had a team and a coach expecting her to show up, she showed up no problem. But when she's trying to do something on her own, it's a struggle. So the answer for obligers, spoiler alert, is outer accountability. They need outer accountability even to meet an inner expectation. So mm. if you want to exercise more, you need to work out with a trainer or work out with a friend who's annoyed if you don't show up or you raise money for a charity or you uh, you know, you know take your dog for a run who's going to be so disappointed if she doesn't get to go for her run. Um, you need that outer accountability. And so the motto for obligers is you can count on me and I'm counting on you to count on me. And then there's rebels. Rebels resist all expectations, outer and inner alike. They want to do what they want to do in their own way, in their own time. They can do anything they want to do. But if you ask or tell them to do something, they're very likely to resist. And typically, they don't tell themselves what to do. Like, they don't sign up for a 10 a.m. woodworking class on Saturday because they think, I don't know what I want to do on Saturday. And just the idea that someone is expecting me to show up is going to annoy me. So their motto is, you can't make me and neither can I. Um, and and the re- and if, if a lot of times people can tell what they are just from these descriptions because this is very obvious. These are not subtle distinctions. We could do the Game of Thrones characters. Like these are all over the place. Um, but if you go to GretchenRuba.com slash four tendencies, F O U R four tendencies, you can take a quiz and get a little answer. But most people know what they are. And the reason that this is important is that 
often what works very well for one tendency won't work for another tendency. So for instance, accountability is crucial. Let's say you're an, you're an obliger and you want to get yourself to exercise or you want to get yourself to write a novel in your free time or you want to start a side hustle. Well, if you're an obliger, it would be like, oh, you need outer accountability for that. You want to, you want to, uh, you know, create a create a video course. Well, get some students to sign up. Give people, uh, you know, uh, credit so that they can take a free course. Well, now you got to create it because you've got these people waiting for it. But for a rebel, they don't like people telling them what to do. So if you have, if they have a feeling of being micromanaged or or uh, monitored, that might make them likely to resist. And so accountability might be counterproductive for a rebel. So when you know what you are or what, when you know what someone else is, it's a lot easier to create s- systems that will appeal to them and work with their perspective. Um, whereas if you don't take the tendencies into account, sometimes you can really do something that's not helpful or maybe is even counterproductive. You, you wrote the book um, a while back now. Has your thinking evolved on any of the t- tendencies? Has, has anything changed because of the pandemic? Have any new ones emerged, you think? You know, those are the four because it's sort of like meet or resist outer and inner. And so um, those are the four that emerge. Uh, but what I saw with the pandemic was sort of like everything was more true than you could possibly imagine. Um, all the qualities of the uh, of the tendencies came out more and more. Like I was seeing it more clearly. Like you saw many obligers really struggling if they lost some kind of outer accountability from sort mm. of the, tri- the the typical um, office thing. Like, let's say somebody was like, oh, I used to go to this exercise class that was across the street from my coworker and I would go to this class every Wednesday after work, or we'd go for a walk um, during our lunch hour every day. Well, now I'm not going to the office, and so I don't have that expectation of going to the class, or now I'm not seeing that coworker. I could just as easily go for a walk in my lunch hour now. I don't need my coworker to be with me, or do I? Well, it turns out that I do. And so um, w- because there was so much disruption around the, the, uh, around the pandemic, it, it showed sort of the strengths and the weaknesses of the four tendencies in a, in a completely kind of um, uh, spotlighted them um, because it was such an extreme situation. It was interesting. Last night we were talking with um, Rick Pastor, and he uh, introduced me to a thing called Working. Um, it was Working Focus Buddies or something like that. And it's basically a service where you both sign up. It's free, yeah. and yes. you do a video conference for fifteen minutes with each other. It blew my mind. I haven't done it yet. I will do it. But it, that seems to be sort of a level of accountability that we didn't need before the pandemic, and now we do. And it's kind of interesting to see these new behaviours emerging. And I'm interested in yes. which ones are going to be um, what do you call it taken forward. I'm, I'm not 100 percent sure if a lot will. But I think a lot of people um, are, are traumatized. And I think, um, well, the New York Times had that piece, didn't they, Realize, um, uh, recently? Uh, it's pretty hard hitting, actually, about how everyone's grieving and, you know, bringing their trauma. And it, it's a work. They're heading back to the office. They're dealing with unresolved, really big stuff. How, how do you think businesses should handle this when it comes to, you know, people's happiness? Well, I think that it's all unfolding and part of it is that we need to stay flexible and we need to really uh, be willing to evolve as we see how these things play out. Um, One thing that I'm very interested in, just because I've done so much thinking about habits, is I think that one thing that's going to be very disrupted for people and very unsettling for people is I think for many people who sort of had used to have a traditional job and now are going to have a lot more flexibility um, is we had kind of five days a week 
schedules and two days a week schedules. And if you look at how people like how they handle their eating, how they handle their sleeping, how they handle their exercise, how they handle socializing, there was kind of this five day, two day pattern, the weekday, the weekdays and the weekend. Well, now that's going to be much more irregular. And maybe I try to have a habit with you, Paul, but I'm coming in Tuesday, Wednesday, you're coming in Tuesday, Friday. Can we do it? Can we pull it off? It's going to be a lot harder for us to sort of um, count on each other and to create an architecture around people because there's going to be a lot, so much more flexibility. So flexibility in some ways is great, but I think that if for a lot of people, they're going to have to really think through some habits and routines that they used to just be able to take for granted. You know, like a lot of people, when you talk to people about their habits, a lot of things are related to like, I do this on my way from to work, or I do this during my lunch hour, I do this on my way home. Well, if you don't have that, I mean, we saw this during the pandemic, then that has to be rebuilt. And I think that it, we still are reckoning with the idea that there is the new, the next normal, but it's never going to be the old way. And we all just have to grapple with that. It's unfolding. And that's, that's very unsettling. I also think it's exciting, right? We have to look at the other yes. side. We can, we can say yes. we could get to a better place yes. as well, you know. No, absolutely, 100%. And there's a lot of reasons to think. I mean, just looking at how people, do, a lot of people don't have commutes. They're not, that's a lot of time to free up. You're like, oh my gosh, the opportunities just from the time that many people are saving from not commuting is a huge opportunity. You're right. And I, I mean, I know at my daughter's school, they're like, we're trying to look for the silver linings. We're, like, as, just as you were saying, we're trying to see, like, what can we learn and take forward that's going to help us, that's going to be a whole new thing. So I think you're, you're exactly right. There's a ton of opportunity. Um, but it's unfamiliar. And so we have to think it through and, and to recognize, well, there's the pros and the cons. And these might fall unevenly. For some people, more freedom could be great and they will use that time extremely well. For some people, maybe they are going to have to like log into some kind of like, now we're all working together silently because they need that kind. They need that vibe, um, which you used to get all the time in the office. You're just quite, you know, you're quietly working. Other people are quietly working. There's an energy that we get from that and a kind of focus that we get from that. And now it has to be created in a new way. And there are many ways to do that. And people are thinking of new ways all the time. Um, we're just going to have to think that through. Yeah, I'm, I'm intrigued to talk to um, different people this season about their sort of elements of, of sort of locus of power and focus of it. One is architecture. You know, you can't yes. expect people to just go back to the same cardboard boxes and sort of, you know, when they've had all this freedom, uh, how, how does how does it work? You know, that costs a yeah. lot of money for a company and that it's it, I think the pandemic has really sort of made people very aware of a system that they were a part of yes. unbeknownst and what now yes. the impact they have on it and that sort of thing. So I'm, yes. I'm very sort of interested. No, um, well, you know, into that point. One of the things I'm very interested in is this idea of hot desking where you don't have a desk, you know, you don't have an office, you lost your office a long time ago, but you had kind of your area and you had all your stuff. And there's all kinds of research that we need kind of emblems of our identity. We, we, we move our brain out onto our fingers and into our possessions. We have them around us. We extend our brains through the stuff around us. And what I wonder is for a lot, I, I myself know many people who are sort of like, I'm supposed to pack it up in a backpack or stick it in a locker and bring it out every day. I'm like, that's going to make thinking harder for a lot of people because we use our stuff to hold our thoughts um, and to, and, you know, to remind us of stuff and to, um, and, and so if you're packing that up at the end of every day, that's going to be, that's going to be, uh, 
um, a challenge. Like, are you going to sort of set yourself up every day with like a, you know, kind of little dip piles? And I, I don't know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a challenge. Um, it, yeah. It's a real, it's a real mind shift. When I joined yeah. um, a company, when I came back from the States, it was called Mindshare, Global Media mm-hmm. Agency, Mental sure, Tourism, yeah. whatever you want to list. Um, they, we moved offices and they literally said, they literally came to, they, they had us all in a big space and they said, you know what this is? And they said, this is your desk. And it was a tiny little box, probably, I don't know what, an A4 times five sort of two wads of a4 paper right or something like that oh wow and uh, letter paper letter for americans and um yeah it, it was not a big amount and you put your laptop <laughs> in there you put a pencil case and that was about it and a notepad and people just went where do i put all this and they went the bin and so it was quite interesting it was quite ruthless the way that we did it but it, it worked and a lot of people loved it and they went oh god it's oh. like i'm free oh. but then other people were like where is my desktop computer i cannot function with a laptop it was but, really interesting to see how they worked but so here and that's another difference among people because one of the things I'm very interested in, how are people different from each other? Because there's sort of an idea that there's a best way or a right way. And there's really no one best way. It's whatever works for you. What works for Paul might not work for Gretchen. And there's no, that's okay. We just have to create an environment where we both thrive. And what you see in the office and at home is that there are abundance lovers and simplicity lovers. And simplicity lovers are very excited by bare counters and empty shelves and not much on the wall and a lot of quiet and a lot of space. And it's just simplicity. And then other people People are really excited by abundance and profusion and buzz and collections and piles and a lot going on. And so if you have many people in your office who are like, oh, all I want is my one box with my one pencil and my one laptop, and that feels great to me, that's great. But then what about all the abundance lovers who are like, but where's my stuff? This all feels so sterile and stripped. I don't feel like I inhabit this space. This doesn't feel like it's mine. I need to have my things around me to like to think things through, to like be feel like I'm in a place. And so again, it could be very different and how a change like that could fall on different people. And what we all know is places thrive on having a lot of different perspectives, a lot of different viewpoints. And if you create a situation where some people feel very uncomfortable and some people feel very comfortable, um, you could start losing something in your, in your work because um, some people are just going to be like, going to be like, well, this isn't for me. I don't want. I don't want this. Like, what? What's going on here? Um, and then you know, they don't. They don't bring their best work, or they don't want to work there at all. Mm. I think all of this sort of surrounds people's happiness in general, whether it's at yep. work, at play, yeah. and that sort of thing. Let, let's talk about the happiness project for a minute. So, um, millions of copies sold. Congrats! Ten year anniversary a couple of years ago. So, what? Yeah. Twelve, thirteen years. Yeah. Um, it's about a year of your life where you undertook loads of changes in your life that helped you with big and small things. What made you? And the book is done over a year, right? January, yes. February, March. Yeah. What made you design it like that? Well, you know, I thought a year was long enough that real change seemed possible, but it was short enough that, you know, you felt like it was a manageable time horizon. And I was just very interested in this question of like, could an ordinary person like me just in part of their ordinary life? So, you know, not moving across the world, not doing like a month long silent meditation retreat, but just in, just in my ordinary life without spending a lot of extra time, energy or money with all my usual responsibilities and schedule, could I find things to do to be happier. So I was like, well, what does ancient philosophy say? What does contemporary science say? What does pop culture say? And I'm like, I'll just try all these things. So I was just a big guinea pig. And they say research is me search. And I definitely, you know, wanted to see if I could make myself happier. 
Uh, but of course, I had to figure out like, well, what is happiness anyway? And ask all these big questions, which I'd never thought about before. Um, and so then every month I would sort of like one month was relationships and one month was energy. And, and I just sort of worked through all the things that seemed to me to be the areas that I needed to work on the most. Um, and just, you know, gave myself some a few assignments and to see what worked and what didn't. And, you know, spoiler alert, what I found was that, you know, there was a lot of low hanging fruit. There was a lot of things that I could do um, that did make me happier. Um, and, and I've been doing it ever since, essentially, just sort of experimenting with different changes that I could make to see if they could make me happier. What's the first step for people who are listening uh, in creating their own happiness project? Well, if you're going to say sort of what is the secret to happiness or like where do you start if you want to do your own happiness, there's sort of two different answers. So one answer is to say, look, relationships. Ancient philosophers and contemporary scientists agree that it's essential to a happy life is relationships. If you look at the people who are happy, they have, you know, enduring intimate bonds. If you ask people at work, are you happy at work? There are people who say, I have a friend at work, not just like a pal or somebody I like chat with by the coffee machine, but somebody who really cares about me, somebody I could, I could confide an important secret to. Um, we need deep, intimate relations that are enduring. We need to feel like we belong. We need to be able to uh, get support and also just as important, give support. Um, so anything that we're doing that tends to deepen relationships or broaden relationships tends to make us happier. So if it's like, should I join that book group? Well, probably that would make you happier. Should I go to that reunion? Yes, probably that would make you happier. Should I go to this networking event, even though I'm not sure it's going to be worth the time? You know what? You should pro it's probably going to be worth your time because deepening and broadening relationships lead to happiness. Um, or the other thing you could say is self-knowledge because to build a happy life, we have to build it on the foundation of our own nature, our own interests, our own values, our own temperament. And so, you know, your happiness project would be very different from my happiness project. And so I, you, we have to think about like, well, what is important to me and where do I feel like I need to make changes or to deepen um, what I'm doing in a certain area? And so thinking about and you think, well, gosh, of course, I know myself. I just hang out with myself all day long. Like, what's the big mystery? And yet it's so hard to know ourselves. It's so hard to look in the mirror because it's, we get distracted by the way we wish we were, uh, the way we think we ought to be, the way we assume we are, what other people want from us. Um, it's very, it can be very hard to, um, and I think it's the great challenge of our lives, in fact, is to try to know ourselves, accept mm -hmm. ourselves and expect more from ourselves. Um, so I think those are two places to start if you're thinking about building your own happiness. Okay. Um, I think it was in March in the book that you talk about work in the happiness project. You say that happy people work more, work better with others, work more in their free time and outperform the unhappy. To what degree do you think happiness should be a key performance indicator for businesses? By key performance indicator, do you mean that it's how you like the happiness of the employees is how you evaluate the business or it's something that you evaluate in your employees? I think for the business, because I, okay. I don't think a lot of businesses go, they worried about ESG, they worried about, you know, finance, but they never go, are we killing our people? <laughs> yeah, right. No, that's a good point. And you, and you say looking around the world, a lot of countries are beginning to measure happiness and to think about that as sort of uh, some, kind of a national um, uh, 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 standard 
third. Like, yeah. where are they falling on that? Um, I think it's a really, really important thing. And I think now more than ever, I mean, you were saying earlier, like, how has the pandemic affected people's happiness and how are businesses uh, um, acknowledging that? No, I think thinking about that is huge. And you see, you know, there's they'll buy a ping pong table, right? Like, that's supposed to make people happier and more playful. And that's maybe, you know, a very small thing. You might say kind of a superficial thing. But it's better than nothing. It's they're trying. And um, no, I think that for businesses being very aware of, of happiness, because, you know, sometimes people think of happiness being very superficial, um, but it but it goes deep into people's nature and their experiences. And it it's it's their the body affects it, the, you know, it, emotions, all these things. So I think it's a really good idea for, for businesses to be taking that into account and seeing how they're doing. And sometimes just trying, showing that you're trying. Um, people will give you sort of credit for that. If they're like, well, they're, they're, they're sort of, they're, they're trying, they're asking, um, they're experimenting, um, you know, it's not always to get easy to get it right, um, but if, if it seems like you care, um, that's important. You mentioned um, earlier about different countries measuring happiness and that sort of thing. There is, there is such a thing as a world happiness report, if people aren't yeah. aware. Um, they just released new data. Um, I, was, I, was still, I was not really shocked. Um, five out of the ten of the top spots are still held by countries in the Nordics. I've visited a lot, and I, just, I, I see why they're happier. But any insights why what you think they're doing right? Well, I think they're doing a lot of things right, but I will point out that they are very small countries that are yeah. like are have a lot of like people are very much the same. And I you know, I live in the United States and I'm like, we're a big country, we're full of all different kinds of people. Everybody's like up in each other's face, you know, like <laughs> asking, demanding, people eat differently, they behave differently, they want different things, they I mean, we're managing a lot and and there's a lot of options, there's a lot of choices, you know, um and and that can feel overwhelming and difficult to manage. So I think sometimes it's a little bit, it's, it's sort of, uh, you know, it's, I, I feel like looking at that, there's much to be gained, much to be learned, certainly, absolutely. And, you know, taking, you know, giving people, a lot, you know, great health care, um, giving them a lot of control over their time. Um, these are things that we know will make people happier, clearly. Um, but I do think sometimes it's a little bit, uh, you know, to compare countries, there's mm -hmm. just, there just, there's a lot of things that are different about different, uh, you know, that, that are, you know, and, and a curious thing is like, you know, happiness though, that I can say this because I'm not a scientist because the scientists could not say this, but I can say it, which is that happiness doesn't always make us feel happy. And sometimes there are things that go to your deeper values that don't make you feel happier in the moment. Um, so something like, let's say you're visiting somebody in the hospital and you just really don't like to visit hospitals. And so you don't want to go. You dread going. You don't enjoy it when you're there. When you're done, you're not. Ha you're like, oh, that was awful. I hate going to hospitals. And yet it was the right thing for you to do. You're living up to your values. You're going to visit someone in the hospital. It was important to them. So you, you're living up to your values. So in a sense, like. You know, in certain kinds of ways that people are like, where are you on the one to 10 scale? Well, you wouldn't look happy at any place there. And yet you are happy because that is what you that's what you expect from yourself. And so I think sometimes, too, there are things where it's like, oh, well, it's it's hard to have a lot of options. It's painful. Maybe it would be easier if I just like, you know, just followed the, a, a course that was laid out for me. Um, and yet 
I want to have a lot of options or I want to have, I want to have a lot. Um, uh, uh, so anyway, I think it's, I think it's complicated, but there's much to be learned. There's absolutely yeah. much to be learned from the countries. Why, why, why are, what, what is, what is, what are the elements that are making people happier? I think if nothing else, it's interesting just seeing how other people do it, you know? Yeah, no, um, absolutely. We're all doing the same thing. We're living in 100%. countries, we're living with each other, you know, and that's yeah. I, well, I think a lot of it. I'm sorry, then. And it's funny how people, like, love, like, a, a term from another country, like, Higa, or, you know, there's all this, like, Swedish death cleaning, and, you know, it's sort of like we love it when there's, like, a word that we can import, uh, an idea from another from another language. It's always sort of exciting for people to, to think it through um, yeah. in, in their own context, so that's always yeah. fun to see. Let's flip the conversation on its head a bit. We're seeing a shift in anxiety, right? The big A word that keeps coming out. Individual, societal, depression rates are shooting up. And that data is actually from pre-pandemic. We don't have it from, you know, a lot of it from the actual pandemic and what effect it's had. People used to say, I have butterflies in my stomach. And now we have more sort of clinical terms that we attribute to stress and different ailments that are happening. Um, What data do you pay attention to? And what's it telling you when it comes to anxiety and happiness? Well, anxiety, you know, negative emotions like anxiety, guilt, anger, resentment, um, within reason, they can be very helpful. They, they, are, they are meant to help us. They are signs that something's not right. And so they are meant to help us um, fix a problem, address a problem. Um, and so they can be helpful. But like everything, you know, any medicine can become poison. And a little bit of anxiety is important because I'm a little bit, you know, I have the right kind, if I have the right kind of anxiety, then I'm going to go to the doctor to get something checked out, or I'm going to spell check my document, or, you know, I'm going to leave extra time to get to an important meeting because I'm worried about getting there on time. So it's not that I think sometimes people are like, well, I should have no anxiety. No, a life without any anxiety would create its own problem. But then it quickly becomes to a point where it's, it's, this uh, can be destructive or, or, uh, or draining. Um, and, so I, I pay a lot of attention to how people talk about it. And, you know, because what, what I'm interested in is sort of what does the ordinary person do as part of the ordinary day? Like, how do people manage it? And, you know, and I think there are many things that if, you know, not if you are a, like depressed and I'm talking about people in kind of the ordinary course of life. So I'm not a doctor. I would not. I would not pretend to address like people who who need to see a doctor, who need medication, that kind of thing. But there are things like getting enough sleep, getting some exercise, getting morning light, like, you know, start with the basics, um, you know, or because I think um, sometimes, especially when people feel anxious or overwhelmed, we have this, uh, this desire to give ourselves a treat. And we're like, you know what, given the day that I've had, I'm going to stay up and binge watch you know, some show, or I'm going to give myself an extra glass of wine or an extra, you know, an extra cup of coffee. Um, I'll sure I'll be able to fall asleep anyway. I'm so exhausted. Um, and so we can kind of, uh, we can, there are things with, for an ordinary person, again, I'm not talking about people who are sort of like, you know, really have a serious issue that needs to be dealt with, but just for the, in the ordinary scope, there are things that we can do to try to address this. And so I'm always like, well, are you trying the kind of obvious low, low hanging ideas? Um, and a lot of times people have not. Um, so I'm always like, okay, we'll start with the basics and see if that helps you manage it. I'm, it's like, okay, yeah, we're in a pandemic. Getting enough sleep is not going to fix the pandemic, but you might feel 
more able to cope with it if you felt well rested. And again, this this can sound kind of superficial and reductive, but I do think that sometimes we just we have to you know start from the basics and um, and uh, and see if that helps. Yeah, it's about building, isn't it? I think you you know you you never really start from nothing, but everyone's got different sort of building blocks to play with. I think the way the way that's how I sort of have it in my head when I was reading the books and that um, before. there is a much cited uh, Princeton University study that says uh, if you earn £75,000, doubling mm-hmm. or trebling your pay doesn't really increase mm-hmm. your happiness, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Matthew Killingsworth, he's done a recent study and it seems to confirm that data is out there, but mm-hmm. it also sort of went a bit further and said if there is a change in people's income of, say, from 100000 to 700000 dollars which is a lot of money um that does make a big people that does make a big change for people it's it really sort of like flicks a switch into not rich poor but those that along those sorts of lines um i when i was reading it the sort of question sort of picked on my hair are billionaires happy happier than the rest of us or do we just win by celebrating the small stuff that we sort of talked about and maybe you know weak tie interactions are those are the things that most of us should be really focusing on because we're not allowed but maybe can attain that level of happiness versus the jump from 100,000 to 700,000? I think that the research on the connection between money and happiness, I I have a lot of questions about that um, because so much of it is, uh, it's very complicated. The relationship between money and happiness is one of the most complicated and emotionally fraught subjects. Um, And because to say, it just so much depends on a person's situation, right? Because if mm. you're a single person who lives alone and has a turtle and likes to watch movies on TV, or you're a big person who has aging parents and seven children and loves to travel and, you know, uh, has a medical condition that needs to be man- I mean, there's just so many things that go into, like, how does that situation influence your happiness, like, on an individual level? So I think it's sort of like... I, 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 it's i think to make generalizations about it is hard and also a billionaire that's so exceptional like that's kind of it's i don't think that it works the way people think that it works it's not Mm. like you know uh things change also there's all sorts of you know we tend to compare ourselves when you look at social comparison we tend to compare ourselves to people who are like of our age and kind of of our income bracket this is why some research suggests that you're better off being like like a more affluent person in your neighborhood like where everybody's slightly less affluent than the least affluent person in a more affluent neighborhood there's some research that suggests that so it's all about comparison so i don't think it's like we start out at one place and as your income grows i mean human nature just having more money is never it's not like all of a sudden you're going to get to number you're going to get to 10 on the happiness scale and you're going to be there 24 seven. That's not how human nature works. And that's not how money works. You know I mean? Things change. You're, 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 I, I just, I think it's very, I think it's very hard to make these like very simple, like, and this is how it works or at this, you know, a, mm. a, slip, a switch flips. It's like, I don't know. I, I think it's very complicated. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because they, a lot of people say money equals happiness or more options and that sort Do of thing. Do they say they, that? Do they say that? Because everybody says they say that, but I don't think anybody says that. And I've, I think I've they, never had in it a said way, directly in a to way, me. <laughs> I think in a way they, they, I think they say, oh, money does not equal happiness more. And I always am finding myself saying like, well, the thing is money doesn't buy happiness, but money buys a lot of things that will lead to happiness, like control of your time, mm. health, um, being able to be, get, support your values. Um, 
things, you know, it gives opportunities. I mean, so I don't know. I don't, I don't feel like people do say money buys happiness. Hmm. Um, do they? I think some people sort of infer it through the options element that we mentioned, but then a lot of people, you know, fight against it. And you go, but there is a realism between money being giving people what they think they want. They might be wrong and that might not be what they want. They might need to be on the ladder and see that they're better than the Joneses or whatever. Well, that's th- that, I mean, that's such a good point because money is so many things. Money is money, of course, and, and, and that's money. But then money is also a grade. Um, money is, is power. Um, money is opportunity. Uh, money is 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 giving, um, and so so there's so many things that it can be to so many different people. Um, so and then and and then sometimes people love to work, and so people are like, well, why would you keep working? You also you you've got more money than you could spend. So clearly, if you keep working, it's because you're just greedy. I'm like, well, some people like to work. That's how they, that's what they do with their lives. And you might say like, well, they shouldn't like to work. They should do something else, but. They seem to like to work. That's what they're Mm. choosing to do, even though they don't have to. So maybe that's just they're making money. But what they really want to do is be active in the world in the form of work. So it's it just Mm. it represents so many things. I think that sort of talks about. No, I agree with that. I think it sort of talks in a way around sort of purpose. And if you found if you found what you're after, then money sort of becomes less important to you. And I think that for me is something I'm going to be talking all the way through this season is how to find that purpose and sort of what it means when you found it. When do you know? Does your purpose change? You know that sort of thing. Well, I think that's I think that's a, a crucial idea. Absolutely. And I think it's tied to money because for some people that sort of they don't have a purpose other than like, I'd like to do really well in my job Um, or uh, right. But then for other people that those things are completely not connected at all. Um, absolute purpose is yeah is a, such a fascinating idea. Mm. Um, is it correct that if you set more little goals rather than big ones, most people see greater success? Did I read that right? Well, I don't know about that. I mean, I, I you know whether more or less. Um, I think from for an individual, if you're thinking about should I set up little goals or am I better off setting up a lot of little little aims or one or like one big overwhelming aim? One thing I've noticed is that some people they kind of want to go big or go home. They want to big bold aim or they kind of lose interest so it's sort of like hey could you um you know paul could you run a marathon in 2022 and some people are like oh my gosh i can't run a marathon (laughs) but maybe i could run down the block you know and like and then in a week from now run two blocks and then a week in a month from now i'll be running five blocks and that makes me feel like accomplishment i'm building a habit i'm i'm i have the atmosphere of growth but for some people they're like oh my gosh like i'm not interested in that i want to run the marathon or i'm not interested and so i would never say to people sometimes people are like oh that's the wrong way to do it i'm like whatever works for you is the right way to do it if you want something big and bold and that's what gets you excited and that's what gets you moving um though it does seem to be true that for many people kind of the slow steady uh climbing up a ladder of accomplishment does kind of keep them going also a lot of people like don't break the chain where they try to do something very consistently and and see themselves building that chain that also can can work really well for people Mm. um but with time i've become more and more aware of how different people can be and how few true rules apply to everyone yeah uh, when it comes to happiness 
it's interesting, isn't it? Because the world of work that we're going to, a lot of people have decided to become sort of entrepreneurs and work for themselves. You know, the great resignation, I'm seeing data that it was always happening already, but now we're just, you know, we have uh, data that we can show that we we think it's happening more. Accelerating. Um, Yeah, exactly. And, um, but for entrepreneurs, there is a difference between a work-life balance than, say, an office worker. And you could yeah. argue there's more pressure on an individual because of they have to do everything, HR, finance, everything. Yeah. Um, do you have any specific – do they differ? Does happiness differ for both of those people? Or, or does it all just boil down to like the person being a person and they chunk their time however they want to chunk their time? Well, I think this is a really crucial question. And I think it's like back to this idea of self-knowledge. I think it's really important for people to sit back and think about like, well, what kind of person am I? Where do I thrive? How do I want to spend my time and really think this through? Because I think you're right that as people become sort of more independent workers, a lot is demanded of you that in the past you didn't have to worry about. And for some people, they thrive on that. When you say you're a questioner, and a lot of times questioners like to work for themselves because they're like, I don't think other people do their research. I don't understand why other people are doing these things these ways. Like, this doesn't make any sense. I don't care the fact you've already done it. Like, I want to set things up right. Um, so they're very satisfied by that. But then for other people, they, they, you know, they don't want to be bothered with all these things. And, and, and it's, uh, it's, it's hard when they have to take on so many different roles. So I think as people consider whether, you know, whether a shift is right for them um, or how to make the most of an opportunity, it's really to think about, to be honest with yourself about, you know, what am I good at and what am I not good at and what am I ignoring because I can't deal with it or what am I procrastinating about and how do I, how do I figure out how to deal with that? Because, um, you know, the four tendencies is all about meeting expectations and, and what I've seen is some people really are very much self-starters. Like they can kind of just get things going on their own and for other people that is more challenging and so if you're not in an environment that creates that, you need to create that. And so you want to make sure that you do create that um, consciously um, because um, there are a lot of aspects of being in an office that we just took for granted. Like you said, like people are questioning things that they never questioned before. And part of that is like, what have I been, what have I never had to worry about that's now my responsibility and that can be quite uh, quite an undertaking and 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 so I think it really and it's about the fit it's the fit of the person like how does it fit with your strengths your weaknesses what you're interested in what you're not interested in the opportunities available to you um, but and this is also important like if you're going to partner with somebody you know often you partner with people who are very much like you and have your strengths and then like you can really connect with them. But like if you're partnering with somebody, you probably want some, them to be good at something you're not good at and interested in doing tasks you think are really boring and don't even want to talk about because that's the kind of thing you don't bring to the table. So again, the self-knowledge piece is really important because that's how you can you can think about, well, what's what's needed? What do I bring? And what do I need to figure out a way to import into mm. the situation. I always, when I work with a new client, I look at them as if a puzzle and I say, what piece are you? What piece are you? Ooh. How do you fit together? And oh, what does it look what, like? What a brilliant way to think about that metaphor. I love that because it's not judgmental either. It's not like who brings the bigger, better piece. It's like, yeah. 
we need you to figure pieces. out how to make these pieces fit together. And is there a missing piece? Yeah. And sometimes yeah. you can see when you when when they're forcing two bits together, you go, it sort of fits, but actually you see this nodule here, it means it's not the right piece, you know, and that's sort of, and that's the way I sort of it's it's helped me think about businesses and also the changes that are needed within them. I see it moving forward though, that that's become so much more difficult because of the virtual nature of where we are with the world of work. Um, which leads nicely onto a question actually. I'm asking everyone this season. Um What's your take on the metaverse and the future of work? Are we going to be avatars floating between virtual offices or buying stock in Zoom? Is that still a good idea? Where do you want it to go, Gretchen? I think that no matter, I think because of the convenience of meeting in the metaverse and how so many things are possible, like that will happen, that will be important. But we are wired for face to face. And I don't think that I don't think anything can ever replace that. Um, no matter how good an artificial comes, there's something about the air currents, smelling somebody, touching them. I mean, my next book is all about the five senses. So I'm very focused on the power of the five senses. But I just think there's something about being in real life that in the end that we will have to ha figure out how to include that because we can't we need that for a sense of really deep connection. Um, and so I think that while, you know, virtual can, can, can save us so much money and time and, and, and there's so many, there's so many positives that can come from it. But in the end, I don't think it can be, I don't think we can replace just like our physical bodies and our physical presence, but we're going to mm. have to think through like, what's the minimum, what's the minimum dose we need? Um, or, you know, how, and or how, like, is, can duration replace frequency? Like if I see you for a whole day, once a week, is that the same thing as seeing you briefly every single day? Like, it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out as we, as everybody's doing different things and experimenting with different models. It's going to be fascinating, but it's going to mm. be rocky. Uh, you, you beat me to my last question just before Desert Island tweets. What's the next book about? Tell us a bit more about The Five Senses. What's it going to be about? When's it out? It's out next summer. Um, and it's about how we can, you know, I was having a feeling that I think a lot of people were having, and this was even before the pandemic, where on the one hand, like my, my I, I just felt kind of stuck in my head and things felt kind of thin and unreal but they also felt kind of like hyper saturated and, and and you know like kind of overly intensified and i realized that i just wanted to get back into my senses i just wanted to really feel like i was connecting with the world connecting with other people uh connecting with my memories through my five senses and i mean this is the most joyful delightful delicious thing to study i am just so excited about you know each sense um is is just so powerful and brings so much to to our existence and so um working every book that i write i think it's never going to be this good this is the most interesting subject i will ever write about this is a high point it's all downhill from here and then i write something else I'm like this is the most interesting book this is the most exciting subject um, and I just love the fight. I just, I, I, and I think now more than, yeah, I started it well before the pandemic, but I think now the people, the, the people are just fired up, like to see, to touch, to smell, to taste, um, to listen, um, you know, to go to a live performance instead of hearing a recording, like all these things are, we're like, we're yeah. so aware now of our delight in these things, um, and how precious they are. Um, sometimes it's hard yeah. to appreciate things until, um, 
have been taken yeah, away. It's really true. And I think now, it's I mean, horrible, people yeah. walk into a crowded room now and they're just like, this is the greatest thing that has ever happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> I've also seen people hug walls in events as well, but it, it, we'll, we'll get, get there. there. Yeah, I think yeah, we'll yeah, get yeah. back. Yeah. True. Okay, folks, uh, we end as ever with Desert Island Tweets, the part of mouthwash where the guest picks a tweet or two that has changed their mind or way of thinking in some way. So if you turn your attention to the nest, um, there is a tweet um, up there by um, uh, Barbara Ann, and uh, she put the quote up there, which um, Gretchen chose. It says, I grasp the meaning of the greatest secret that human poetry and human thought and belief have to impart. The salvation of man is through love and in love. Viktor Frankl, who was a Holocaust survivor. And the picture that she's used there is The Kiss, 1907 by Gustav Klimt. Um, why did you pick this quote, Gretchen? Um, you know, whenever people say to me, like, is there a book that you would recommend to every, you know, what book if you could tell everybody in the world to read? Um, Man's Search for Meaning is one of those books. It's such a beautiful book. It's such a compelling book. Now more than ever. Um, and I just, I feel like his reflect that whole, the whole, if I could, I would have quoted for like pages, um, about his, him writing about what he learned from his experience. And I just think that that through love and in love is something that I try to remember every single day. Yeah. It's a, it's a nice quote. I didn't, I didn't know anything about him. So I did a bit of, um, oh, you got to read well. the book. Very fascinating Paul. life. So oh yeah. Good. And it's a page turner too. I have so many books no, I've got to read, but definitely no, I will. But yeah. People are like, oh, you know, it's a classic. And you're like, eh, yeah. But I mean, this is a page turner. It's short. It's so powerful. You will mm. be highlighting every page. It is, it is, it is, put it on the top of your list. You will be happier for oh, you it. You said the magic word. Yeah. You said the magic word at the moment, which is short, so that's good. I'll definitely put that to the top of the list for sure. Um, no, I'm reading a book. It's called um, Get Rich or Die Lying, and it's all about influencers and the murky world, shall we Ooh. say. So that's my page turner oh. at the moment. It's very oh, interesting for yeah. sure. Um, yeah, I'll put, I'll put a link on my uh, on my Twitter and that sort of thing. Right, okie doke. That is a wrap on episode two of season four. My thanks uh, to Gretchen Rubin for giving me her time on improving your hour happiness. Um, make sure you buy the book, any of them. They're all amazing, I must admit. Um, but the happiness project is the one that will really i think transform uh, most people's lives you can download the app and listen to her podcast as well for all things gretchen just point your browser to gretchenrubin.com um gretchen before you i let you off um any final words or advice for listeners really i would just it, just to reiterate it's like there's no tool fits every hand and so if something's not working for you don't blame yourself don't get discouraged just think you know i'll just set this set this up differently i'll set up my schedule differently or set up my surroundings differently um, you know, always just think about what works for you, um, because there is no magic one size fits all answer for how to be happier, healthier, more productive or more creative. So just think about yourself and what works for you and try to try to follow that. Yeah, I love that. I think that's great advice as well. You've got. I think we we have to work together yes. more, but we also have to yes. be well aware of what what we need in order well, to be and, a better and person. And I think and when we know what we need, that's when we can show compassion for other people and understand. Like, well, I'm one way. You may be a different. Let's figure out a way that both of us can thrive. It's not. It's not that one person's right and one person's wrong. It's how do we work together so that everybody has the conditions that they need, um, and we we can do that cooperatively together. 
Yeah, definitely. Okay, that's a great sentiment. Okay, up next on Mouthwash is Rub Walker, New York Times work columnist and author of The Art of Noticing. That is a fantastic book that immediately improves you and the world around you. Um, we're going to be talking all things work and self-related, self-improvement, and that's something. Rob's um, incredibly insightful. Uh, he's covered the whole spectrum of work for the New York Times. I urge you to tune in. That's uh, tomorrow for those who are listening live. Um, head over to mouthwash.norby.live and you will get a text as soon as we go live, so you never miss a minute of mouthwash i urge you to do that mouthwash is produced by the team at big tent media special thanks to my producer the wonderful suze who reminds me to do such things as tell you the lo-fi music that we use on mouthwash is called lo-fi hip-hop by coma media as always and everything mouthwash even the text alerts can be found over at mouthwashshow.com that's mouthwashshow.com i'm a firm believer that you do not remember the days we remember the moments and i hope this has been one for you i am paul armstrong this is mouthwash listening again soon to get fresh chat that leaves you feeling more confident thanks for listening to mouthwash please share it in a network you trust and check out our sponsors season four of mouthwash was sponsored by workplace by meta the easy to use features at workplace help people work together in new ways to make your place of work a great place to work visit workplace.com forward slash human that's workplace.com forward slash human have a great day